Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. You can find out more by visiting lifeinnaples.net. By the way, Happy New Year to you. I hope uh, everything, the exchange into 2021 was a good one and that it's going to be a very successful year for all of us. Uh, Hopefully uh, COVID will pass and uh, we'll get back to life as normal. We have today with uh, Mark Schulman will be visiting with us. We'll visit with Mark about current global events, including what's happening with Brexit, China, Afghanistan, COVID, and other issues. We'll also visit with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll talk about lockdowns and their comparative harm to uh, our economy and society. We'll also visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of several books. His latest is Shake the Bunny Tree. It is January the 4th, and on this day in 1965, in his State of the Union address, President Lyndon Baines Johnson laid out for Congress a laundry list of legislation needed to achieve his plan for a great society. On the heels of John F. Kennedy's tragic death, Americans had elected Johnson, his vice president, to the presidency by the largest popular vote in the nation's history at the time. Johnson used this mandate to push for improvements he claimed would uh, better American quality of life. Following Johnson's lead, Congress enacted sweeping legislation in the areas of civil rights, health care, education, and the environment. In other words, it got government much more involved in our daily lives. The 1965 State of the Union Address heralded the cl- uh, creation of Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the White House Conference on National Beauty, uh, Johnson also signed the National Foundation of the Arts and Humanities Act, out of which emerged the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Through the Economic Opportunity Act, Johnson fought uh, a war on poverty. And Michael Harrington's uh, The Other America was the book that prompted a lot of this. Anyhow, by implementing improvements to early childhood education and for fair employment practices and policies. He was also a strong advocate for conservation, proposing the creation of a green legacy through preserving natural areas, open spaces, and shorelines, and building more urban parks. In addition, Johnson stepped up research and legislation regarding air and water pollution control and measures. Wow, that's a lot of government spending, isn't it? And a lot of waste. Under Kennedy and then Vice President Johnson led the government's quest to develop American excellence in the sciences As president, the ongoing technology race with the Soviet Union spurred Johnson to continue the vigorous national program of space exploration uh, begun by Kennedy. During Johnson's presidency, the National Air and Space Administration achieved extraordinary and unprecedented accomplishment of orbiting a man around the moon. Though many of Johnson's programs remain in place today, his legacy of a great society has been largely overshadowed by his decision to involve greater numbers of American soldiers in the controversial war in Vietnam. That's Johnson's legacy. I'll never forget the one quote uh, after he signed the bill into legislation. He said he, these niggers would be voting for us for the next 200 years. Uh, what was his real motive about all that? He was a very persuasive and, and uh, po- effective politician. Unfortunately, his ideas were a little perverted and created a, some good things and some bad things too. Well, the Florida Department of Health reported 159 new cases of COVID-19 and no additional deaths in Collier County on Sunday. As health workers gave the first batch of COVID-19 vaccines to high-risk seniors and workers in Collier County on Sunday, officials announced they're shutting down most public testing sites. So I guess we'll find that there'll be fewer tests, uh, cases reported of uh, positive COVID-19. Sunday, we'll, we'll watch for that. Sunday's vaccination site at the Florida Department of Health in Cuyahoga County distributed 400 doses of high-risk frontline workers and residents 65 years of age or, uh, age or older. So uh, it was reported that most people were pretty satisfied with the, praise, uh, the, the way things were done with a drive-through uh, opportunity instead of sta- standing in line. But 
Nevertheless, 400 doses is not going to go a long way in Cuyahoga County. Now, U.S. healthcare workers are first in line to receive COVID-19 vaccine, but an alarming number of across the country are refusing to take the vaccine. Earlier this week, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, uh, DeWine disclosed that about 60% of the nursing home workers in his state have so far chosen not to get vaccinated. More than half of New York City's EMS workers have shown skepticism. And now California Texas are experiencing a high rate of Healthcare workers ref- uh, refusals, according to reports. I estimated 50% of frontline workers in Riverside County and Golden State in California opted against the drug, and more than half of the hospital workers at California's St. Elizabeth Hospital that were eligible to receive the vaccine did not, according to the paper. And in Lone Star State, a doctor in Houston Memorial uh, Center Medical Center said that NPR earlier in the month that half of the nurses in the facility were not going to get vaccinated. That's a lot. So it uh, looks like uh, they must know something, and I don't know why they're deciding not to get vaccinated. It may be because herd immunity is set in and uh, feel like they don't need it. A high percentage of va- uh, vaccine refusal among not just healthcare workers, but also the general population. Our ability as a society to get back to a higher level of function depends on having as many people protected as possible. That, according to Mike uh, Mark Lipsitch, who uh, made these comments. He was a Harvard epidemiologist. So uh, maybe uh, we'll see how this all goes. I know people were standing in line in Lee County, long lines to get uh, vaccinated. It's going to take a long while, though, based on this for people to uh, get vaccinated. Nancy Pelosi was narrowly re-elected Speaker of the House and Representatives on Sunday as a new Congress took office amid political uncertainty with Senate control undecided and a Republican fight looming in the presidential election results. The House voted 216 to 209 to reinstate Pelosi after 11 uh, Democrats lost seats in the November election. Five Democrats chose not to support her. She actually flew one guy in who had COVID (laughs) to vote for uh, to, to win the vote. Unbelievable. Another couple of years of Nancy Pelosi. Hopefully she'll retire after that. A growing number of Republican senators led by Ted Cruz announced uh, yesterday they will also object to certifying state electoral college votes on Wednesday and called for resurrecting the Electoral Commission to conduct an emergency audit of the results. I think this is a pretty good idea because I think it could reassure the American people that uh, there will be integrity in the the, uh, results. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's hoped to avoid the spectacle of his party leading a last-ditch effort to prevent Joe Biden from declaring the 2020 election winner, but Josh Hawley of Missouri said he would raise a general objection, and now other Republican senators plan to air more specific grievances. Republicans involved include Senators Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, James Lankford from Oklahoma, Steve Daines from Montana, John Kennedy from Louisiana, Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee, and Mike Braun from Indiana, as well as Senator-elect Cynthia Loomis, who's a Republican from Wyoming, and uh, Roger Marshall from Kansas, Bill Haggerty from Tennessee, and Tom Tuberville, Tommy Tuberville of uh, Alabama. Now, Congress should immediately appoint an electoral commission with full investigatory and fact-finding authority to conduct an emergency 10-day audit of the election results in the disputed states. Once completed, individual states would then evaluate the commission's finding and could convene a special legislative session to certify a change in the vote if needed, the senator said in a joint statement. Accordingly, we intend to vote on January 6th to reject the electors from disputed states as not regularly given and lawfully certified. That's the statute that's required. Unless and until the emergency 10-day audit is completed. So some Democrats have occasionally raised individual objections to certifying the Electoral College results, but in a large-scale partisan objection would turn a usually unusually procedural action into a challenge of a bedrock American democracy. And it's really necessary because right now nobody could have confidence in these results. I think this is an outstanding uh, move on the part of Ted Cruz, and I certainly support it. Uh, otherwise, without it... Uh, uh, if they accept the electors as they are, people will have doubts about the election. And if uh, they uh, simply override the electors, which they have the power to do, there's still going to be questions in the minds of many of why this is being done. 
think Ted Cruz is on to something here. There's no need to rush to January 20th. We need to get this right, in my opinion. Vice President Mike Pence said he welcomes efforts by lawmakers to challenge Electoral College results in the upcoming Congressional Joint Session on January 6th. So uh, that's interesting in itself because there's been some scuttlebutt that perhaps he wasn't on board, but certainly he is. Uh, Vice President Pence shares the concerns of millions of Americans about voter fraud and irregularities in the last election, Short said, in a statement sent to the media outlets. This comes after a group of 11 senators, as we mentioned, uh, questioned the results. Uh, Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama said President Donald Trump and House Republicans held a call to discuss the objection to the Electoral College vote during the January 6th session, suggesting the fight is, gonna, uh, the fight is uh, gaining steam. He said that at least 50 lawmakers, I've heard up to 140, including Representative Jim Jordan, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and uh, Trump himself were present during the uh, meeting. He did not say what other House lawmakers were on the call, but uh, yeah, I was mistaken. There's 140 representatives who said they would support uh, this move. So it looks like we're in for an interesting week or two or three. We'll see how this all plays out. But I'm so pleased to see that uh, instead of just caving to the uh, fraud and the uh, unlawfulness of this election in some states, uh, we're going to challenge it. And that's a good thing. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning Naples Longest established air conditioning company, visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Lifeinnaples.net is the website. Coming up, Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. More of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best and now building a great performing arts center in downtown Naples. You can find out more by visiting golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. He's an author. He's written several books, mainly on past presidents. He's also the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. 
Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. As usual, going to talk about, for the last 14 years. We'll be talking about uh, current global events, and I understand we have breaking news about Iran. Right, two different pieces, two different stories coming out of the Gulf right now. One is a South Korean uh, oil tanker. I think it's an oil tanker that was heading towards the UAE was seized by the Iranians. There are various reports, everything from the fact that it went off course, the fact that the Iranians are claiming that it was leaking and therefore they were they seized it for pollution. It's not at all clear, you know, what's going on other than the tensions that exist in the Gulf right now between Iran and the UAE, particularly since the UAE signed a peace agreement with Israel. So we don't know what's going on with that. Literally, this has developed in the last half an hour or so. Additionally, Iran announced the fact that it's going to continue or start again uh, enrichment of uranium to 20% in their under, underground nuclear facilities for though that's supposed to be closed, according to the JCOP agreement. So that's a further violation of the agreement, but of course, keep in mind, the United States pulled out of the agreement, so mm-hmm. it's really hard to know how how one is supposed to react. I thought they would hold off these two things until after January 20th to test the new incoming Biden administration, um, but maybe they're feeling with the, the chaos in the United States right now, this is as good, good as time as any. Interesting. So, well, now, it just popped in my mind, because I, I didn't know about this, that uh, North Korea and, and, of course, uh, Iran are bedfellows when it comes to nuclear activity. So I'm wondering if perhaps that was some sort of a, a cover for some sort of an exchange with uh, North Korea. Well, it's always possible. I mean, they are clearly working together. Mm-hmm. We need to keep that in mind. I mean, the policy towards Iran and North Korea has been a total disaster in the last four years. Mm-hmm. Nothing has been accomplished. They both moved forward with their programs. Um, with Iran, the U.S. pulling out basically eliminated the leverage we had over them, for better or for worse. It was a so-so deal, but it was probably better than no deal. Mm-hmm. So, um, and Korea, forget it. South Korea, North Korea has you know, continued to build nuclear weapons, uh, missiles, and everything else in the last four years, and they have not slowed down for one moment. So what, what do you make what do you make of the saber rattling going on in Iran about President Trump, or he's a dead man, and all that stuff? They're, they're well, it all has to do with the anniversary of the killing of of their um, uh, of their chief guy and um, by the United States, um, the head of their Quds force that was we killed in Iraq, I guess it was a year ago. Mm-hmm. So that's what saber rattling is all about. Um, it, who knows? Who knows? Um, they're difficult people to say, difficult government, I won't say difficult people, but difficult government to say the least, that would be a bit of an understatement. Yeah, I would say the, the people are pretty much westernized to some degree, and uh, very nice people, apparently it's the government that uh, is so extreme. Uh, when right, ha- absolutely, so. Happens so often. We'll see where this develops, um, it'll be one of the major challenges that the Biden administration will have, you know, from day one, obviously, what to do about Iran, but I think almost every president in the last uh, 15 years has had the same, well, every president, going back to Ronald Reagan with the hostages. So it's mm. been a recurring theme in American foreign policy now going uh, back. Maybe going to back to uh, Carter, in fact. What? Well, yeah, well, Carter, Carter, under Carter, that was when the Shah was overthrown by the, by the current government. Right. Um, it's been another question whether Carter could have done more, whether it was a good idea, a bad idea, we can put that aside. But then he had to deal with the hostage situation. Then we had the failed rescue operation, and then beyond that, um, whether he whether he could have, whether he could have done more to support the Shah. Right, that's an interesting question. It's historical. The Shah clearly was problematic. The question is, could the United States have helped maneuver a different outcome as opposed to allowing the radical Islamists to take over? Right. I don't know. It's an interesting story. So but history, you know, it's. Almost 50, you know, it's 40 years ago already, 40, whatever, 41 years ago, so. Well, I don't think uh, of that right now that Iran is being ruled with the, uh, of, with the with the support of the people. I think it's pretty much of a... Well, that's t-t-t-t- most dictatorships, but they've managed to maintain themselves. Yeah. So uh, uh, you're right now in Tel Aviv, for our listeners to remind our listeners that you're in Tel Aviv. So uh, what's going on? And uh, there's a lot of news in Israel, uh, the development of AstraZeneca. Right, so there's a, mix, there's a race in Israel going on between vaccinations versus rising rates of COVID-19. So what happened is Israel's doing a very good job in terms of vaccinations. They've vaccinated 
uh, 2 million people, which is uh, over 15, 18% of the population. Wow. They've vaccinated over 40% of those people above 60. Wow. 50% of those people. Israel took a very straightforward approach. It first vaccinated its healthcare workers, or simultaneously, they were the first priority. And so every hospital got enough vaccines for their full staff, and the uh, HMOs, the four HMOs in Israel, uh, received for their staff. And then they started vaccinating everybody above 60. I received my first uh, dose um, almost two weeks ago, and we'll get my second dose next week. And that would be... Um, uh, that would almost be... everybody I know who falls was a 60 and above um, has either been vaccinated or will be in the next couple of days. Yeah. Uh, at first, there was some reluctance. People were saying, quickly developed, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody who was reluctant has now been vaccinated as far as, I mean, not everybody in the country, but yeah. everybody I know who was, you know, questioning, wait, let's see, uh, everyone has gone to be vaccinated at this point. Yeah, so that's a Moderna, as, as I understand it right no, now. No, this is Pfizer. Pfizer. Moderna has not come to Israel yet. They're expecting Moderna in the next couple of weeks. Okay. All Pfizer. Okay, so that's, that's double doses as well. Interesting. That's, yeah, they're both double doses. Okay. Uh, the only difference is Pfizer has to be stored at uh, 70 degrees um, uh, under 70 degrees cent negative centigrade, which is very, very cold. Um, the issue that Israel has, its, it's success relates to two factors that it's uh, not really well understood. Israel has this very strange hybrid uh, social capitalist uh, medical system. What do I mean by that? Uh, you have... You have national health insurance. Everybody in the country is has health insurance. Mm -hmm. However, it is given by four separate HMOs. So there's four national HMOs. They all compete with each other for patients, for doctors. Mm -hmm. And then the hospitals themselves, some of the hospitals are part of the HMOs, while others are, um, others are independent uh, hospitals, all nonprofit, um, but they don't get donations and everything else. And work together with the HMOs. So basically, there's a database of everybody. There's no issue finding those people who are, who are the right age group that or have pre-existing condition, pre conditions. They can keep track of anybody who gets sick afterwards, correlate who had pre-existing conditions and what the causes have been. And so it's a very, it's a very good delivery system uh, to reach your whole population. Mm -hmm. um, and it, because it's competitive, doesn't fall under the problems that exist in, let's say, Great Britain, where you have one, you have one system. So it's a sort of a strange um, hybrid between capitalism and socialism in terms of medicine. Yeah. So and on top of that, people can get their own private insurance if they want to. For instance, if you if the wait to see a doctor is too long, you can have to take your private insurance and pay cash, and the doctors accept cash for you know. And you get jumped to the head of the line, so to speak. It's not yeah. bribing. It's literally they have certain hours. No, for, just, uh, I would, I would, I would guess most of the people that have the means would have the private insurance, so they can uh, jump to. Yes, the but it's unnecessary in most cases. That's the interesting thing. It's and it's not very much money. Yeah. The private insurance. The private insurance for um, runs about one hundred and fifty dollars a month, as a, on top of what's basically about one hundred and fifty dollars a month the the regular insurance, which is the national insurance, and it covers five years of um, nursing home care in case you need it. Wow. So, overall, it has its negatives, but it's a much more efficient system than it yeah. exists well, in the United States at the moment, as we can see. I haven't really happening. penciled it out, but my guess is that's not, <laughs> not going to be able to fund that forever. It would, uh, no, it actually, Israel spends much less of its GNP on, on, on um, medicine than the United States does. It spends about 9.5%. U.S. is spending 17%. Yeah. So, Mark, we have so much to talk about. Can you stick around? Absolutely, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you 
have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity, maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability of Pratley serving their board. I hope you'll find out about all their terrific programs. You can visit thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Jim McTagg. He is former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He's written a couple of books. Real interesting guy living in the Beltway there in Washington. Right now, we continue the conversation with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website, HistoryCentral.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Mark. So, Mark, here we are. Uh, uh, finally, after, what is that, four years, two years, I've forgotten now, Brexit has, oh, yes. been, has been finalized. Yep, the agreement was reached between uh, Great Britain and the EU, and so cargo moved back and forth without a problem. Um, it looks like it'll be a, it's a soft Brexit, which is all good for everybody, mm-hmm. um, and we'll see where that goes. Um, I I would assume that in the long term, um, the Brits will find they didn't gain all that much from Brexit, but we'll have to see how that how that develops over the next couple of years. You know, I predicted um, that uh, you know, there would be uh, probably inertia. In other words, the the, system, the process would continue pretty much as it was after Brexit as before Brexit. As, have things pretty much, are they looking the same now? To some extent. I mean, some companies have moved their, their financial headquarters from London to Brussels or other places. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, because there's an agreement now, it'll be a lot easier to continue pretty much the way things were previously. Let's put it that way. Maybe you could comment also about uh, uh, COVID in in uh, Great Britain. The COVID in Britain has gone way out of control. It's part of the problem right now. COVID, the positive rates in London, I think, if I'm not mistaken, yesterday were 26 percent, um, which is a very high rate, and and I think in Birmingham was like like 40 percent, which was an incredibly high rate. Um, so Britain is really panicking. They're talking about doing two things right now. Number one giving only one dose of um, of the vaccine as opposed to two, hoping that at least one dose, it'll bring down the infection rate. Mm-hmm. And number two, they've approved the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, even though they were going to re- be redoing their phase three trials because there's a lot of mistakes made in the phase three trials and certainly would not have passed the FDA at this point because of the the problems in the data from the, from the trials. Yeah. Also, the AstraZeneca seems to be a lot less effective. It's still at 70-something percent as opposed to 95% of both Moderna and Pfizer. Mm-hmm. The issue of giving only one dose is a, a big philosophical uh, question at the moment because mm-hmm. on one hand, the logic says, well, okay, we know that one dose provides some sort of protection after eight days. So it's eight days after you get the, get the dose, you start developing... Uh, some of the antibodies, and that provides some protection. Mm-hmm. However, there was no real testing done on what the long-term effects of that are in terms of, of how long the antibodies remain and are they strong enough as opposed to two, two doses. So on the other hand, the argument is, well, if the, if the rates are so high and so many people are going to get sick and so many people are going to be dying, isn't it better to do something than do nothing? And that's a hard question, right? I mean, well, there's there's another option. The other the, the other option is to do uh, the population with one dose first, and then do it uh, later. Maybe take a couple of months, long time, maybe. To, well, but to the do... question is, we don't even know whether one dose lasts a couple of months. I see. In other words, we don't have any data 
other than the fact that we know that after um, eight, nine, ten days, first dose does produce antibodies, and, and those antibodies will, to some extent, um, defeat uh, COVID trying to enter your body. So my question would be, uh, Mark, uh, how's the healthcare system doing, Great Britain? Is it being overwhelmed? Uh, yes, at this point, it's getting it's getting quite overwhelmed. The numbers are just are just so large; it's getting overwhelmed. I mean, it's getting overwhelmed in Southern California too at the moment. Mm-hmm. But um, it's got it's it's really gotten very bad in Great Britain. Also, their poli- their, their stop start stop start policy has not helped in terms of uh, what's going on. What's interesting is so, this morning I read in the Naples Daily News uh, that, and of course, this is local. But uh, they said that coincidentally it was starting, and they, they gave out 400 doses apparently this this uh, Sunday or Saturday. But so, in other words, we're just getting started here. But uh, the paper reported they're going to stop testing as a result. Stop testing? Why? I have no idea. I'm just reporting what I read the news. That's not logical at all. I mean, it's it's, it's illogical on multiple levels. I mean, if you're going to stop testing, then how, you listen. You're giving out 400 doses. What's the population of Naples? 300. Well, Naples is 20,000, but the the Collier County is 360,000 folks. Okay, so you're giving out 400 doses. That's not doesn't you know make a dent in the overall population. No. One of the fears, and this is a fear actually here in Israel, where they've given out so many doses at this point, people don't realize. First of all, until you're eight, nine, ten days in, having gotten the vaccine does you no good. Mm-hmm. So people are immediately saying, ah, I can go kiss my grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera. But wait a second. Those first few days, it may psychologically feel like you've done something, but medically you've done nothing yet. Mm-hmm. And so there's a real concern there. B, you have to keep on testing in order to keep on cutting the, you know, in- interrupting chains. Someone who's who has the disease needs to quarantine himself or herself. Uh, and so that's a tremendous mistake. I don't understand what the logic there is at all. Well, of course, and uh-huh. what we're now having a discussion of, and, and the big problem here is, of course, all the unknowns about this uh, about this virus, which is creating such a pandemic of fear, in my opinion. And again, right. I'll, but one thing we do know for an absolute fact that someone who has the virus should not come into contact with people who don't have the virus. Mm-hmm. Right. You can argue about ma- how effective masks are. Although they're very effective. But the reality is that if someone is actively have if someone has the virus, they can spread it. Mm-hmm. If they're locked up in their room alone, they can't spread the virus. So I read that uh, some if somebody's asymptomatic, they don't they're not contagious or they they're not going to pass. No, it that's up. not that that has been proven to be false. You could be asymptomatic and still spread the well, virus. Well, that's my point. Is a lot of misinformation out there. So. Days. Yeah, a lot of misinformation out there still, unfortunately. Hey, listen, yeah, be- there is. before I let you go, I do want to talk about a couple other things. Uh, let's do uh, what's happening with China right now. Well, China right now has been um, doing a couple of things. Number one, of course, they've been uh, militarily uh, using their navy to intimidate Taiwan. Right. Second of all, um, they've been trying to make all sorts of trade agreements with Europeans and Asian countries before the Biden administration can come to power and try to, you know, the Biden administration wants to do a multilateral approach against China. So what China has done is they said, okay, let's make an agreement with various European countries or the EU and with Asian countries so that none of these countries are going to be willing to work together with the Biden administration against China. Um, so they're making use of this period of time of uncertainty to uh, cement their relations with countries that would hopefully be allies of the United States mm-hmm. and confronting China in terms of trade. Mm. Um, so this is a it's going to be a big, a big challenge going forward, to say the least. Um, you know, China is is a challenge, a complicated challenge. Indeed. Um, and, but, you know, we, we haven't done a very good job recently or at all over the years. So how about how about uh, Afghanistan and what's going on there? Afghanistan, you know, the negotiations are continuing between us and the Taliban. But simultaneously, it would seem, the uh, Taliban have been engaging in targeted assassinations of all the elite of Afghanistan. Hmm. And that's one way of eliminating it. It's what the Soviets uh, did in Eastern Europe. They eliminated the elite. And, and they actually did it within Russia itself. When they, the communists came to power, they rounded up, sent to gulags or, uh, or killed all of the alternative elites, whether they be the educated class, the engineers, whoever it might be, uh, that's how they maintain power is by eliminating all the potential 
opponents. Jeez. And the Taliban seem to be taking a, uh, a taking from the playbook of the Russians or the Soviets, doing the same thing at the moment. That's what happens when you so, centra- when, when power becomes centralized. More and more power just leads to uh, well, we need things to be a certain way, and uh, if, if people are getting in the way, or we fear they might get in the way, we're going to eliminate them. That's- well, it's, it's, you know, it's any totalitarian. Uh, it's only totalitarian government. The Taliban are totalitarians. I mean, let's yeah, be honest. That's exactly Here, right. Whether we come to an agreement or not with them, let's understand the fact that they are bad people. Absolutely. Well, you know, it isn't bad, coincidental with uh, uh, evil, coincidental with centralized power, coincidental. I mean, it's the, uh, to me, it's the ongoing problem of people who want to eliminate liberty and freedom are pretty much uh, on the side of evil. Absolutely. Um, But remember the fact that when a country has more centralized power, um, evil is much easier to to spread and to uh, succeed. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the things we have to keep in mind is the fact that what sort of you know government exists. You can have a benevolent dictatorship, usually not, but benev- but what happens when that benevolent dictator? And yeah, I'm hey, Mark, it, I, I, on. I heard that happened once. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Schulman again, yeah. the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Mark, I genuinely appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week, Bob. You as well. Thank you. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Larry Reed. President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Lyndon and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Shore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, It's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of 1st Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It is brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse. I proudly served on the board for 15 years as the board chairman. Uh, they may bring professional New York style theater at its very best. I hope you'll visit the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. He's a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. We'll be talking about what's happening in the Beltway. Right now, we have with us Larry Reed. As I mentioned before the break, he is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Bob. Good morning. Good morning, Larry. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We are an educational organization, and our focus is on high school and college students. 
We try to educate and inspire them in ideas of individual liberty, free markets, small government, and private property. We do that through our website, which is fee.org, and also through uh, online uh, and in-person events all over the country in schools and on campuses and sometimes even abroad. Terrific organization. I strongly encourage if you have somebody at high school or college age in your life, uh, introduce them to the Foundation for Economic Education. It can have a very positive impact on their worldview and uh, also on their sense of responsibility as well, I believe. Uh, So, Larry, uh, you wrote such an interesting column, a response more destructive than New York City's historic files, and we're talking about the lockdowns, uh, New York City's lockdowns. Maybe you could tell us about it. Yes, I'd be happy to, Bob. Uh, You know, in history, we've had uh, a lot of very major and famous fires that have destroyed parts of uh, major cities, Uh, all the way back to ancient Rome, There was a fire that uh, uh, consumed about two-thirds of the city of Rome, Mm. uh, which went up in smoke in 64 AD. AD. And then uh, London had a great fire in 1666 Mm -hmm. uh, that obliterated 100 churches and every city government building uh, in the city, and about seven-eighths of the city's population had their homes destroyed, and other such examples as well. Well, New York City also has had its uh, fires, three big ones in its history. One was in 1776, and the next one was in 1835, and the third big one was in 1845. And uh, I decided to take a look at uh, the damage done by those New York fires and the damage done by the recent uh, COVID restrictions, lockdowns, and what have you. Mm. And uh, it seems to me that, hands down, uh, the government's lockdowns and policy of stuffing uh, COVID patients into New York nursing homes uh, caused uh, more deaths than the three great fires of the city combined. See, it's such an interesting and important point because, of course, uh, we're not focusing enough, I think, on the uh, the unintended consequences of these lockdowns. And by the way, uh, I also the fire <laughs> the was Mr. O'Leary's cow that was blamed uh, for the fires in uh, in Chicago as well, which yeah. devastated the city, quite frankly. So it was just unbelievable. So, I mean, these fires are pretty serious. So maybe you could make the case for how that's the case or how uh, COVID has done worse damage. Well, you know, you might think that uh, a major city densely compacted like New York City, even in the 19th century, when it had a fire, that there must have been enormous uh, death tolls. But surprisingly, uh, those fires of 1776, 1835, 1845, um, although they destroyed uh, and and killed more by fire in the city than uh, any fires New York City has had since, the actual numbers of deaths is surprisingly small mm. in uh, in each case. Wow. Uh, the one in um, 1776, uh, the, the death toll isn't uh, exactly known, but it's likely to be no more than a dozen or two. Uh, and the uh, fire in 1835 uh, killed just two people, even though it destroyed more than a half billion dollars uh, in property. And the 1845 uh, fire killed just about 30 people. Uh, so those are, you know, bad, but uh, relatively small, surprisingly small death tolls. But if you look at the numbers of old people uh, who died in nursing homes uh, after catching COVID from COVID patients who were ordered into those homes by mm-hmm. Governor Cuomo, that's in the hundreds. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in the thousands statewide, but in New York City, it's in the hundreds. So <laughs> that factor alone makes the uh, uh, experiences last year in New York City more deadly than the three fires combined. Well, of course, that makes the case for the death toll, but there's so many other unintended consequences, including the economic costs as well as uh, things like uh, suicide rates and uh, mental health issues, and you can go through the list. Yeah, uh, enormous costs. Uh, Now, the fires did something that these restrictions, uh, because of COVID, did not, and that is destroyed, uh, physically destroyed whole city blocks. Mm -hmm. But uh, the COVID restrictions have had a major impact in driving people from the city 
uh, of New York. There's been a net loss of more than 70,000 New York City residents uh, in in less than the uh, past year. Uh, There's been approximately $35 billion in lost income. Uh, And, of course, with the lack of jobs uh, uh, caused by uh, the lockdowns, uh, a lot of businesses by the thousands in uh, restaurants, theaters, museums, uh, you name it, uh, uh, and stores uh, are, are closed and probably in many cases closed for good. Great. Of course, there's other things going on, like, for example, a very dis- <laughs> ineffective mayor. And he's not, I shouldn't say ineffective, that's the wrong word. I would say yeah. he's a very destructive mayor who's done so much to drive people out of the city as well. But the point being is that, uh, you know, lockdowns don't serve us well at all. You take a look at what's happened in California. You see the uh, probably the most locked down large state in the nation. And yet their uh, COVID rate is out of sight. And people are apparently they're running out of uh, rooms, to, uh, room to store dead people <laughs> because of COVID. So <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not a laughing yeah, matter, I guess. It just isn't apparent in California or New York or anyplace else that these uh, mass lockdowns have done uh, more good than than, than harm. Uh, Most likely they've done far more harm uh, by uh, uh, the economic damage they've created. Yeah, Uh, I've said this so many times on the show, but I'm so grateful that we have Mayor Ron, our Governor Ron DeSantis as our governor. I mean, he has basically said, you know what, we're not shutting down anything. And uh, he actually said that if you're going to locally install some sort of a mandate with regard to uh, lockdowns in any way, they have to be approved by the governor's office. So uh, we live in a free state, and the consequence, well, guess what? Uh, We we have cases going on, but our economy is working, and people are getting along just fine. Great point. Yeah, absolutely. Again, Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org, F-E-E.org is the website. Larry, I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. He is a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of Father Leader and its sequel, uh, Shake the Money Tree. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tamiami Trail in Bonita Springs, at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobhardenathotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... 
Bob Harden. Thank you so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board. You can find out by visiting the website, thefga.org. We have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Jim McTagg. He is former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Once he retired, he decided to take up writing, and he's written a couple of great murder mysteries. Uh, the first is Father Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Jim. So here we got uh, a big week here in Washington, D.C. Uh, of course, we have the uh, Mike Pence leading the process of proving the electro- Electoral College votes on January the 6th. There's certainly going to be a challenge to that. We know that. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm afraid we might have... Uh, violence here in D.C. I hope not. Uh, to me, the Republican Party has become the party of Jefferson Davis. Uh, I'm being facetious. I but know you are. You know, they seem to be pushing a sort of a, a brand of separatism because the um, I think the election results have been tested in the courts. Joe Biden won. And uh, President Trump's uh, famous phone call on Saturday, uh, the tape of which was leaked to the Washington Post, uh, it's kind of, it's an outrage. It's, um, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's, 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 some of it is very funny comically, but when you, when you weigh the consequences of that call and his point of view, mm-hmm. it's so anti-democracy. It gives me pause because, uh, I think he's nutty and, and he's got the red button, uh, on his desk. Uh, who knows, uh, what other stunt he'll pull in the next 16 days before he leaves office to garner attention and to, uh, to strengthen his base for a purported run um, four years from now. That's so interesting. I, mean, I, I, have, I have to say this uh, confirmation bias, I think, exists. And to me, of course, I, I read certain media outlets. I try to pay attention to as many as possible. But I'm certainly influenced most by the ones that I that support my point of view, and I would suggest that's probably if you're reading the New York Post. Quite frankly, the, the odds are, in my opinion, that you're not going to get good information when it comes to what's happening in the world and in the country. You know, when I was a journalist in Washington, I was a journalist here for 30 years. I would have uh, there are people that are constantly trying to. Uh, manipulate the press and get you to investigate things. And they would come up with these uh, crackpot theories that sounded convincing on their face. And then when you dug in, you realize that they had made up the facts to, to try to um, get you to chase after um, uh, one of their opponents and, and hopefully unearth uh, something unsavory. Uh, Trump seems to be uh, uh, following that pattern. Uh, the, the other thing about Trump is that he has a history of manufacturing facts and numbers. Uh, going back to his television days, he, he used to, to tweet fake uh, audience uh, numbers. Uh, uh, even as the Nielsen ratings on his show sank, he would be tweeting about how great the ratings were. Yeah. In 2016, he accused the Republicans of stealing the primary or trying to steal primary candidates from him uh, during the election. He said the whole Republican process was rotten, and he singled out Ted, Ted Cruz um, among the people who were uh, prominent thieves of uh, his delegates. So uh, in 2017, he, he was uh, accusing the Republicans again of uh, trying to steal the election, and, and, and uh, so there's nothing new in this pattern. It's so let, let me ask you a pointed question, though, Jim. Uh, was he wrong when he made those accusations? Uh, yes. He ended up winning. So, uh, but did, was he wrong? Was he wrong in accusing them of trying to steal it? Well, probably not Ted Cruz. I think he's uh, showing that um, you know he 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 just twists with the wind. So, uh, in you know, it's 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 preposterous that they should be supporting Trump. If you listen closely to the tapes that were leaked to the Washington Post, he's he's asking. Uh, Brad Raffensperger, who was the Secretary of State with, for Georgia, to come up that he, to come up with eleven thousand votes for him, claiming that you know the process is so corrupt there must be eleven thousand pro-Trump votes laying around somewhere, and and he cites um, rumors he's he's heard from from uh, various social media sites about uh, people triple counting votes. 
uh, he cites a, a video uh, that Rudy Giuliani uh, produced, which the Secretary of State of Georgia points out was edited to give the false impression that some campaign worker was triple counting votes. Um, well, let, let me ask you a pointy question, Jim, just to cut to the chase here. Are you suggesting that the uh, vote in these uh, states that are contested, in these six states, are legitimate? Uh, yes, and I think you can. You might find a few instances of fraud, as as uh, Raffensperger pointed out. Uh, two people, two dead people, actually voted, uh, but it was far short of the thousands of dead people that uh, Trump is claiming. You know, in my career as a journalist, I I was involved in in covering elections. Uh, you know, uh, constantly local, state, mm -hmm. federal. Uh, the biggest fraud that, that I ever saw, and I didn't personally report on this one, but it would be in Bergen County in New Jersey, which was notoriously corrupt. Mm. Uh, they got caught, and as big as the fraud was, in terms of uh, a national election, it was minuscule. Uh, my point being that if you're going to pull off a massive uh, multi-state fraud, it would take uh, the kind of organization and brain power that the Democratic Party just doesn't possess. Oh, I'm afraid they do, and I'm afraid they did. And uh, my point is this, that Ted Cruz has suggested, why don't we just have a complete audit of these states, uh, a 10-day pause and period where we're going to go through the, all the uh, evidence uh, of this, and then we'll come back and ha make a decision. I think that's a wise way to approach because there's many people, like uh, only 74 million of us, who believe the election was uh, was uh, fraudulent, or the Dominion voting machines? The you know, there's so much evidence that suggest. In fact, not even forget the votes, forget fraudulent behavior. How about the fact that these states, in many cases, didn't follow the laws they were required to follow in order to uh, run the elections? Yeah, I mean, uh, Pennsylvania, Georgia, they've had the audits. Uh, the, the stories about Pennsylvania not following the law are. are totally bogus. I mean, you have these sites like QAnon, you know, just sending rumors onto the White House and, and the president gloms onto them because they conveniently support his desire not to have lost the election. The fact is that the president beat himself. The election was Trump versus Trump, not Trump versus Biden. And, and people held their noses and voted for Biden. And I was one of the people who held my nose and voted for Biden yeah. because I think, I think Trump uh, has no moral compass. And I don't think he, he believes deep in his heart in anything he ever embraced. He would, uh, he'd embrace anything if it appeals to his base. So uh, in my opinion, uh, he does have a moral compass. And in my opinion, he actually is uh, displaying a, a quality that we usually don't see in Republicans, which is a, he just doesn't quit. He plays fair, but he doesn't quit. And for that, I'm extremely grateful. We saw people like Mitt Romney said, okay, we'll just cave in, let it be stolen from us. Well, uh, he will fight it until the last, he'll, he'll play fair, and if in fact he loses, he loses, but he's going to be in it to the very end. He's demonstrated in that in both elections. He leaves it all in the field, and I'm very proud of him. I'm proud to support him. Well, I'm hoping that the conservative Republicans uh, rally and create a new uh, party. I mean, for one of a better term, let's create a Whig party that is truly uh, fiscally conservative, uh, adheres to the Constitution, yeah. and is trustworthy. Uh, uh, the Democratic and Republican parties today are both morally bankrupt, in my opinion, and I'm, wow. I'm looking for a new path forward for the country. And you, uh, Well, I think we can both agree with that, and that's probably a good note to end on. Jim McTague again, author. Uh, follow the leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. I'm telling you, it's two great murder mysteries you will really enjoy. Hope you get a copy of them. Jim McTagg, again, is the author. MC, capital T-A-G-U-E. Jim, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Bob, I love you, even though we differ. Uh, you're a fabulous broadcaster. <laughs> well, I'm going to say this. person. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I enjoy having you on, because other, if I, otherwise, if I just have people that agree with me, it's like having a conversation with yourselves. <laughs> Very interesting. Thank you, Jim. Have a good You're one. You're welcome. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if uh, you have any comments, you can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Bob Harden at hotmail.com.
Com. If you'd like to get a, uh, on the distribution list of my newsletter, you can also include that. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to visit with Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator. Boom Mortensen will be with us. Always fun to find out what's new with Boom, what's on her mind. Seat Motley is the founder and president of Less Government. And again, my wife Linda will be joining us. She writes, uh, Greetings from Paradise, and she always has interesting comments on what's happening locally and across the nation. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harton Show on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharton.com.